It's always exciting when we start a new book. How many people here have ever studied the book of, I keep on wanting to say Joel, Amos? Anybody? No? How many people have ever read the book of Amos? Okay. Um, that's good to know. I was teaching the youth one time at another church, and I said, turn to the book of Amos. And they all started laughing like, yeah, right. I'm like, like it was a joke. They really thought it was, there's no book. <laughs> Name Amos. I think of the cookies, right? Famous Amos cookies. <laughs> but tonight we want to look at just the introduction to this, and we're not even going to get really through our outline tonight either. We'll come back and pick it up next week. Hopefully you found the book of Amos. We're beginning this new series, and um, we're going to read just the first verse tonight, just one verse. And uh, Amos 1.1, it says this, The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of uh, Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would uh, give us wisdom as we look at this prophetic book. Help us to understand in the coming weeks and even months, Lord, as we go through this book together, uh, that the message of Amos is really a, um, has a message not just for people back in his time, but even for us today. He's really a prophet for our time as well. And we ask, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, help us to heed what he said through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Um, we're told, Lord, throughout history, as you study history, that the nation of Israel actually uh, persecuted and killed the prophets, we're told. That's what actually happened. And, and, Lord, you said that their blood was on their hands. The blood was on their hands because of that. But it's on the hands of all of us who have not heeded the message of God. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to respond to this wonderful prophetic book we thank you for what you're going to do in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. We well, probably, I don't know if you can read this or not. You can use your phone to blow it up, but I'll just go through a couple of these facts. I found this little chart, and I thought, well, that's kind of cool. It kind of summarizes everything. But um, I'm just going to highlight a couple of things because we're going to go through the rest of it through our study tonight. But if you look at the Amos and the position that it's in the Bible, it's the 30th book of the Bible. It's also, the, obviously, the 30th book of the Old Testament because it is in the Old Testament. Um, it's the eighth of 17 books of prophecy, and they range from Isaiah all the way to Malachi. It's the third of 12 of the minor prophets, which are Hosea through Malachi. And there's 36 books in the Bible after that. So you have nine chapters, nine chapters in the book of Amos. It's not a big, big book. 146 verses. Uh, 4,217 words, probably depending on what translation you have, but thereabouts. A couple things that I want you to notice tonight about Amos, <clears throat> that he prophesied in Bethel about 755 B.C. Now remember, we're talking before Christ, right? So <clears throat> you'll see sometimes I'll give a range of numbers, and it goes from a large number to a smaller number. And that's because leading up to the birth of Christ, the numbers obviously decrease, right? Before Christ and afterwards, A.D., in the year of our Lord, they go up. Um, he was a farmer who became a prophet, which is an interesting thing when you begin to learn more about his story, as we will tonight. Uh, the only time that his name appears in the Old Testament is in the book of Amos. So he's not very well known for that reason. He's from Tekoa, it says, and Tekoa was in Judah. Remember, it, the, the land was divided into two kingdoms. You had Judah and you had Israel. Israel was the northern kingdom. Judah was a southern kingdom. He lived down there in Tekoa of Judah, and it was located about 12 miles south of uh, Jerusalem. And the town is no longer there, but the ruins are. You can actually go over there and visit Tekoa. Not a whole lot there. Um, astronomers tell us that there was a solar eclipse that occurred in Israel on June 15, 763 B.C. And you say, well, who cares? Well, this would have been an event that's fresh in the minds of the people 
as Amos is writing this prophecy from the Lord. And if you just jump over to Amos chapter 8, verse 9, and look at what it says there, he says, And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. Pretty interesting. So that was kind of fresh in their minds, and, and God kind of included that in there. Amos also ministered after Obadiah, Joel, and Jonah, and just before Hosea, Micah, and Isaiah. And to understand a little bit about the culture and a little bit about the, the surrounding economic situation and everything that Amos lived in, it's, it's a period really of, it's an optimistic period in Israel, let's say that. Things were going pretty good as a nation. There was great prosperity. The economic circumstances were ideal. As far as military goes, they had a great military. Everything was going great. Assyria, Babylon, Syria, and Egypt were relatively weak nations at the time, so there was not a whole lot of threats. And it was three decades before Israel would fall to Assyria. So 30 years there. So the key, the key to the book, if you're wondering what's the theme, if you could wrap it up in one sentence, it would be God's judgment of Israel. God's judgment of Israel. That's what it's all about. It's about the judgment of God. And a lot of times when we talk about God, we like to think about his love. We land on the word love. We don't think of God as being judgmental or anything like that, but God is a God of judgment, and we're going to find that out. And he was judging them because their sins were so horrific. <laughs> Even though they were living in this prosperous time, everything was going great. They had an empty ritualism in their religion. They were just going through the motions. They, were very, they became very arrogant in their hearts before God. They began to oppress the 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 poor, and kind of give favor to the rich, and so the rich were taking advantage of all the poor people. Therefore, the next thing there's greed, right? That was just in everybody's heart. There was a lot of idolatry going on, a lot of idolatry. There was materialism. People were worshiping things of the earth, um, a lot of deceit, a lot of callousness, a lot of self-righteousness among the people of Israel before God because everything was going so well. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, think of our nation. We haven't been a nation that long, but the years that we've been a nation, yeah, we had a couple hard time in the beginning, but after that, it was pretty prosperous. I mean, most of the technology in the world came from our nation when you stop and think about it. And that leads to kind of an arrogance and a greed and a materialism and a callousness. Although the people have repeatedly broken every possible aspect of their covenant with Jehovah. They had a covenant with Jehovah. They, they broke everything. The Bible says that, that God's mercy, that his love for them is demonstrated by the simple fact that he sent this prophet Amos to them. And so the role of this prophet was really to warn the people of their fate if they kept on going down the same road, if they refused to repent. He was basically telling them his goal was to convince them, look, you better change your ways. Because once again, the judgment of God is at the door. Seven times in the book of Amos, God says, I will send fire. Some of the charismatic people in our culture focus on that word fire, and they're always talking fire, 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 fire. I don't think they realize that fire is judgment from God. Okay, I think they fail to understand that. And so they're always trying to say the fire is burning within all this stuff. But he says, I will send fire seven times. And God promises basically to reinstate the Davidic line, to renew the land, and to restore the temple. And so we're going to deal with three things just quickly. The description of the prophet, the date of the prophecy. And I think when we describe who this prophet is, it's going to be kind of interesting. Uh, the date of the prophecy that's very significant because it, it relates to all the other prophets, actually. They're all kind of intertwined here. And then thirdly, the details of his message. We'll probably get through the first two, maybe into the, a little bit into the third one. And that third one, the details of his message, really is an overview of what exactly this prophet was saying to the people of Israel and 
somewhat to the people of Judah as well, even though there were separate kingdoms. It applied to them as well. So let's start tonight with the description of the prophet. Take your Bibles and turn over to chapter 7 of Amos. We'll jump around a little bit tonight. Chapter 7, and I want you to look at verses 14 and 15. We get a little bit of background on Amos. When we look at the description of the prophet, there are three things that we want to notice here. First of all, his own testimony. This is what Amos says about himself. Look at what it says in verse 14. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, who is the priest during that time, look at what he says. I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son. <laughs> so he's saying, I don't know why I'm doing this. I'm not the son of a prophet, and I'm not a prophet. But I was the herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs or fruit. But the Lord took me from the following the flock... And the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. So right away, he describes himself. In describing the prophet here, we learn that he has not been trained in any of the schools of the prophets. He wasn't trained for any sort of um, a field that would give him some kind of extra understanding about religious things or biblical matters. He makes it clear that he had no connection whatsoever to any of the prophets. That's, that's why he says, uh, you know, I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. I have nothing to do with the prophets. But God still spoke to him. God still is going to use him. And that's one thing that you can, right off the top, it kind of hit me that you know that God can use anybody at any time. Anybody at any time. You don't have to have a bunch of letters after your name. You don't have to have years of training. If you're willing to be used by God, he will use you. He can use this guy who was out there basically with a bunch of animals all day. <laughs> I'm sure some of you talk to your animals, but they don't usually talk back, I would hope, unless you're Dr. Doolittle or something. But for the most part, you know, you're around a bunch of animals. You're not going to be able to work on your conversational skills or your oratory skills that well. They don't provide the best conversation so here's a guy who didn't have anybody to talk to. He's out in the wilderness with these animals. And yet, this simple profession, God took him, it says, out of that land. And, and, and they, he used him in a very, very significant and powerful way. He actually sent him, he took him out of Judah, where he lived, to Koa. And he says, you know what? Go to Bethel. And Tekoa, like I said, is located in Judah, the southern kingdom there. And God said, you know what? I want you to go north to Bethel, which is somewhere in the sub southernmost part of the, the, the kingdom of Israel up there. Um, you remember Jeroboam the first, if you know your biblical history at all, not the one that's mentioned in verse one, that's Jeroboam the second. But Jeroboam the first, he was the one that led Israel into idolatry. Remember, he set up the the golden calf at Dan, and then he set up another golden calf at Bethel. Well, that's where Amos is going. He's going to Bethel because he knows this stuff shouldn't be going on. And so that's where he went. And he says very bluntly, I'm not a prophet. I, I was no prophet. Neither was I the son of a prophet. Now, in addition to his testimony, let's talk a little bit about his trade. What did he do? <clears throat> it says he was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore trees or sycamore figs or fruits, whatever your translation may say. We know a little bit about Tekoa. It, it's still there in existence, technically. Its ruins are. It's not very significant. It never was very significant, even when it was inhabited. It's situated on the borders of the desert of Judah, two hours south of, of Bethlehem. And so it's in a very barren, desolate place. It's not a place you would go on vacation. It's, it's, you know, it's just not a very delightful place to be. Now, here's a man who has no training whatsoever. He's not a prophet. He's not the son of a prophet. He's talking to animals all day, and he's out there picking these some kind of fruit, and he's on the edge of the desert. And it says the words there, he, he gathers these figs or sycamore fruit, that's an interesting phrase in the original Hebrew because it's, it's really 
speaking of a food, is a common food of the day that nobody wanted. One historian, Strabo, says in his work, it was, it was a fruit that was not desirable at all. And he goes on, he says, it was kind of like figs, but it didn't taste like figs. So it must have been really gross stuff. And this is what he was picking. And this is what the poor people would eat because nobody else would eat it. So it was always free. It was a common food. And he obviously wasn't a very prosperous man like some of the other individuals in the Old Testament. They had herds and all this stuff. No. Uh, Tekoa is where he's from. It's actually mentioned, Tekoa is mentioned, that town in 2 Samuel 14. It's a place where Joab went for a wise woman who would appeal to King David to get reconciled with his son Absalom. It's also one of the cities which Rehoboam, Solomon's son, actually built. It tells us that in 2 Corinthians or 2 Chronicles 11, 2 Chronicles 11. It was built as a city of defense and protection. It was on the edge of the desert and it was one of those cities that had Structures all around it, fenced all around it, walls all around it. It was a walled city. Uh, the other mention of Tekoa is the words wilderness of Tekoa. And that's where Jehoshaphat led the Levites in worship and gained a great victory over the children of Ammon, Moab, the Edomites, according to Second Chronicles 20. So it has this town, my point is, Tekoa has some interesting history attached to it, which plays an important role as we come to know more about what Amos is telling us. But look at his title. Uh, not only his testimony is trade, but his title. His name was Amos. Amos. Uh, most Christians have never heard of Amos, let alone read the book. But the fact is that his name represents the call of God on his life. It really does. Uh, he's not well-trained. He's just an average worker. He's not prosperous. He's not in the prophet's line. He hadn't been trained as a prophet. He's not the son of a prophet. He clearly says, I'm not a prophet. And when you put all this together with his name, it's kind of interesting because Amos in Hebrew means burden or burden bearer. And that's very significant because there was a burden on his heart that God put on his heart that he could not escape. He couldn't continue to shepherd these, these animals and just pick this fruit. God put a specific burden on his heart. And even though he had no business, no background, being a prophet or whatever, God put a burden on his heart. And you know what that shows us? Is regardless of your background, regardless of your training, ask yourself, has God ever put a burden on your heart? Has God ever just... Burdened your heart with something like, I, I really have to do this. Well, God saw what was going on in, in Israel. He sees everything, right? And God took this man who basically no one else cared about, who lived out on the edge of the, the desert, talked to animals all day and picked fruit nobody wanted. <laughs> and he used him. And we're going to find this out in a very mighty way to confront Israel and their sin. I mean, that's, that's a lesson all in itself, really. But he was, he was known as a contemporary of Hosea. Uh, some believe that maybe he even preceded Hosea a little bit in his prophetic ministry. And according to chapter 7, verse 10, if you're still there, just look at, at verse 10. It says then, uh, Amos 7, 10, it says, Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Here's what they said about this prophet. Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. So here you have Amos bearing this burden, and when he speaks, the people can't bear his words. He's known as the burden bearer. His ministry, by the way, wasn't, wasn't uh, appreciated very much by the religious establishment of the day either. They didn't care for the they, they looked at him kind of as an outsider. And how often is that true? God lays a burden on someone's heart, and the guy that he lays the burden on, nobody cares about this guy. He's not significant at all. 
And yet God chooses to use him significantly to affect his culture and his generation. And that's exactly what he did with Amos. And we're going we're gonna to find out more about that in the coming, coming weeks. But what about the date, the date of the prophecy, the date of the prophecy? Well, it tells us back there in verse 1 that it was in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Uzziah, the king of Judah. He reigned between nine, or 790 to 740 B.C. 790, you're getting closer to the time of Christ, so the date goes down to 740 B.C. And he was the king of Judah. He was king of the, he reigned in the southern kingdom. And then it says, also in the days of Jeroboam. Now, this isn't Jeroboam who started the idolatry thing. This is Jeroboam II. And he reigned, Jeroboam reigned in, reigned in Israel in 793 to 753 B.C. And he was the son of Joash, king of Israel. And then it throws that statement in there, two years before the earthquake. So it's interesting that when you do a little character study on King Uzziah, he's an interesting man. You can tell by the dates. I mean, he reigned for 50 years. Pretty successful guy as the king. Unfortunately, his success got the better of him, you might say. He grew a little prideful. And in his last 16 years as king, he was stricken with leprosy. As a matter of fact, turn back to this, the book of Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles, past kings, first chronicles, second chronicles, and go all the way to, to chapter 26. He went to Nehemiah, he went too far. Second Chronicles 26. I just want to read the story of King Uzziah, what happened with him, because he was a very pretty good leader, and he did very well for a long period of time. But if you turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 26 and look at verses 16 to 23, this talks about Uzziah's pride and the consequences, really, of his pride. It says there in verse 16, but when he was strong, <laughs> he grew what? Proud to his destruction. What's the Bible say? Pride goeth before what? A fall. Very important that we realize that when we're successful in any way, even in small ways, it's not because of us. It's because of the Lord, especially as believers. And God doesn't like to share that glory with anyone. We have to be careful. He says, for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. And here's what he did. He was so powerful and he was so successful. It says he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. And you say, well, what's wrong with that? There's people that go into churches all day and burn incense. You know, they do it all the time nowadays. Well, back then, the temple was a place where the place where they burned the incense, the altar of incense, only the priests could go. You couldn't go up there. You weren't allowed to go up there. Matter of fact, you were putting your life in danger if you went in there. All right? And King Uzziah just said, hey, I'm the king. I'm going to go in and burn some incense. You know, maybe he had a desire to be a priest or something. I don't know. We don't know why he did this. Because it was definitely known fact that you didn't do that. It's kind of like, I remember growing up in the Catholic Church as an altar boy, you know, and you would go into the church, you'd do the holy water thing, the cross. And then if you crossed the aisle, you had to genuflect. You had to bow down, right? You had to kneel and do your thing and get, get in the pew. And you never went up, up on that white marble platform up there where the priest was because that was his territory. And oh my gosh, we wouldn't know what would happen if you walked up there. But as an altar boy, because you had the vestments on, you had the robes on and all that stuff, you could go up there and you sat there and you rang a little bell and you're looking at all the people like, hey, hey. I'm up here with the priest. You know, it was a big deal. It really was. And you got to burn some incense. You know, you could light the little thing and do the thing for the priest and pour the wine in the water. Our priest always wanted more wine than water, you know, because you're supposed to put equal parts. And you just keep the wine coming. You know, there's like this much left. I put a little water in there, too. And, uh, but, you know, as an altar boy, you felt kind of special up there on that white marble slab looking over everybody. 
Well, obviously, King Uzziah said, hey, I want to go in there, and I'm going to burn some incense on the altar. Look at what verse 17 says. But Azariah the priest went in after him. <laughs> this indicates, it's not like, oh, what's he doing? Oh, let's go see what he's doing. No, it's like, what in the world is the king doing? He can't go in there. We have to go get him. And he went in with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. And look at what it says in verse 18. They withstood King Uzziah. Oh, you withstand the king, pretty good chance your head is going to be on a platter. That's why the 80 guys were there probably to back him up. But still, they, that took a lot of courage to do that. And here's what they, they, they said to him. They withstood him, and they said to him, it is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests. In other words, you're, you're acting out of character. You're, act, you're, not, you're in your wrong lane. Get back in your place. It's for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who were consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong. And it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. So apparently Uzziah was fine with having all this prosperity in his land and military, my, all this stuff, but he was missing something, apparently. Maybe, obviously, he was missing something in his spiritual life because he thought that if he just went in there and burned some incense, somehow he could get closer to God as a result. And that's why they said it will bring you no honor. It's not gonna, this is not going to work go well for you if you don't get out of here. And then it says, in verse 19, then Uzziah was what? Angry. Like, who do you think you are telling me, the king, what I can and can't do? We don't like to be, nobody likes to be told what to do. I don't care who you are. But when you're a king, and nobody has a right to tell you what to do, it hurts even more. And it says they withstood him, and he was angry, and he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. In other words, he was, he was going to do it anyway. That's what the language intends for us to believe. He, did, he wasn't going to listen to these guys. He was going to follow through with him burning the incense. And when he became angry with the priests, look at what happened. Leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. Now, this is a very consecrated place. This is a holy place. This is not, you know, I don't know what, I didn't do all the research to see what kind of cleansing had to take place after the king went in there, but I'm sure that it didn't make the priest's life any easier. I mean, I'm sure there's a process and all that stuff that, you probably learned about that in the book of Leviticus, but we're not going to get into all that. But as a result of the king being disobedient to God, he knew he wasn't supposed to go in there. He became angry, and it says leprosy broke out on, the, on his forehead in the presence of the priest. It, it's not like it took a couple weeks. It just, boom, it's there. If you know anything about leprosy, it's not a pretty disease. It's pretty nasty. And so it broke out in the presence of the priest in the house of the Lord, by the altar of incense. In verse 20, And Azariah the chief priest and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead. And they rushed him out quickly, and he himself hurried to go out. So they grabbed him, and he was like, Hey, don't, don't worry, I'm getting out of here now. And this is serious. I didn't realize how serious it was. Now, I don't know if he knew he had leprosy on his forehead. You notice it's on his forehead. It's not on his hand. So how do you look in, you know, it's not like he pulled out a mirror and go, oh, my gosh. But they probably told him. And he's probably maybe feeling the effects of it. I don't know. Maybe it was just an instant severe case of leprosy. But for whatever reason, he, he had to get out of there. He hurried out because the Lord had struck him. Verse 21, and King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. Wow, pretty serious. And being a leper, listen to this, he lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. Think about it. You go from, that would be like taking 
I'm trying to think of a figure. Okay, that'd be like taking former President Trump and putting him in a house all by himself on a deserted island where there's nobody to see him and nowhere to hear from him and nowhere to talk to him. A personality like that couldn't deal with that. Okay, because why? They, they like the limelight. I mean, he's a personable guy. He's out in the... King Uzziah was the same way. He was a very successful king. All of a sudden, he's stricken with leprosy. He has to live in a separate house. He was excluded from the house of the Lord. And his son, Jotham, was over the king's household. He was kind of a co-regent. He, he, he kind of took over because the king couldn't lead anymore. And it says there in verse 22, he, he would help govern the people in the land. Uh, in verse 22, now the rest of the acts of Uzziah from the first to the last... Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, wrote, and Uzziah slept with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the burial field that belonged to the kings, for they said he was a leper. And Jotham, his son, reigned in his place. Here's a man who was actually very, very much blessed by God, saw the blessing of the Lord throughout his whole ministry for the most part. His heart was, was lifted up with pride, the Bible says, and he decided that he could violate God's word and go into the temple like the priests do, and God struck him with leprosy. And so his son took over, kind of helped him in the last 16 years of his life because you say, well, why couldn't he still be king? Well, as a leper, you couldn't just go out in society. Anywhere you go, you had to say, unclean, unclean, so people would run and scatter. I mean, you wouldn't have any kind of a ministry. You couldn't be around people. And so his son kind of doesn't take over, but reigns with him, helps him out. And uh, what's interesting about his son, um, Jotham's son was Ahaz, whose son was Hezekiah. So when you start to put this whole picture together, it, it, it kind of makes a whole lot of sense. Now, Uzziah reigned from 790 to 740 B.C., 50 years, and he had a great ministry until the last part of his life. How many times do we see that? How many times? Even as Christians and Christian leaders, you hear about people, boy, they, you know, they serve the Lord for 30, 40 years, and, and then, you know, they just mess up. And now, you know, when you Google their name, you see, you know, um, adultery or something. But when you Googled Amos's name, what'd you see? Leper. <laughs> I mean, that's not a good ending for anybody. And so he had a great ministry most of his life. And it says also that it was in the days of Jeroboam, Jeroboam number two, that is, and he reigned from uh, 793 to 50, 753, that's 40 years. And he, he was the son of Joash, who was king of Israel. And the Bible says there, that little phrase, that it was two years before not a earthquake. Notice what it says. What? what the earthquake. So this isn't, you know, just an earthquake. This is the earthquake. How many were here in California for the earthquake? Remember back in the 80s? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I remember it very well. I was watching the ball game, getting ready to watch the ball game. And I had a little tumbler of water next to my bed. I rented a room from a lady, I was single at the time. And um, I had this tumbler on, on the carpet next to my bed, and it was full of water. And I remember when the earthquake hit, the TV went off, and I thought, oh, wow, that was just an earthquake. And I looked out the window, and the electrical lines are going, and I looked down at the, the jar of water, and it's turned over. And I thought, whoa, this was a big earthquake. And... Uh, it was. Well, that's what happened back then. It was this big earthquake. Um, and and it's, it's, it's so important that we understand this because in Zechariah, Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, in chapter 14, verse 5, he talks about this. It was a very severe earthquake. And he says in Zechariah, prophet Zechariah, verse 5 of chapter 14, it says, And you shall flee of the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake, there it is, in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. So even Zechariah refers to the same event, this earthquake that happened during the time of king Uzziah. 
And back in, in Amos, if you go back to Amos chapter 8, verse 8, you'll see there a statement that's made, and it says this in verse 8, Amos 8, 8, Shall not the land tremble on this account, and everyone mourn who dwells in it? And all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? So what Amos does is refer to what this, what an earthquake does, causing the land to tremble. We've all been in an earthquake. But guess what? This prophecy is two years before it happened. It's a very interesting. If you read, uh, if you've ever read uh, Flavius Josephus, he's a historian pretty much, but he has some books called the Antiquities and Wars, and in there, he connects this earthquake, I think wrongly, to the pride of Uzziah. He says, oh, because of his pride, then God caused this earthquake. And, uh, you know, when his leprosy happened, all this stuff happened. Well, unfortunately, uh, it's a wonderful story, and you read it and you go, wow, that's really neat. There's just one problem. It can't be true. It can't be true. It's impossible. Because Uzziah survived Jeroboam II by 26 years, and Jotham, who was Uzziah's son, judged Israel after his father's leprosy, and he wasn't even born when Jeroboam died. I mean, it's very interesting, though, about King Uzziah. You think about this. He, he, he did a lot during his time as king. He completely subdued the Edomites. He put the Philistines down. He caused the Ammonites to pay him tribute. He fortified Jerusalem as king. He raised a powerful army. Remember at the beginning we said everything was going so good? Well, the problem was he didn't see it as the hand of the Lord helping him do that. He looked at that and said, look at what I did. And we see that today in leaders, don't we? And the Bible says that pride got a hold of his heart in the last years of his life are really a sad commentary on, on a man who, who refused to admit, as so many men do, and women, that they totally need to be dependent on God for his blessing. We like to think sometimes it's just, it's us. We got to work hard, and if we work hard, then we'll get the right stuff, and we'll, we'll make a success of our life, and then we can look back one day and go, look at me in retirement, and look at what I've done. A Christian should run from that kind of an attitude. That's not the attitude that honors God. And I think we have to be very, very, very careful, my friends, when God blesses us, that we give him the proper honor and the proper glory, that, Lord, this isn't me. This is you. This comes from your hand. And Jeroboam II, by the way, he had overcome the Syrians. He restored the original borders of the kingdom from Hamath all the way to the Dead Sea, according to 2 Kings 14. And there's a lot of history um, tied up here, and I'm not going to bore you with any more, but there's one king I want you to understand is, is kind of an important thing you have to, to realize. There's a Syrian king by the name of Ada Nerari III. Ada Nerari III of Assyria. And he defeated Syria in 805 BC. And you say, well, what's the big deal? It's a very important event. First of all, because it's indicated in the Bible, but it's also indicated in history. Okay, and so you see it in both places. What this did, this, this victory, it gave Jeroboam of Israel, the second of Israel, the opportunity to expand the territory. And so what did he do? He restored the boundaries of Solomon's original kingdom. And it's the, only in, it's the one and only time after the death of Solomon out of all the kings that this happened. And the story is recorded there in 2 Kings 14. We're not going to get into all that, but Assyria didn't really bother with Israel until Assyria, um, until this guy came 
His name was Tiglath-Pileser III. Tiglath-Pileser III. That's the name you kind of have to put in your bank because he's all over the place in the Bible. Uh, he came to power in 745 B.C. He invaded many times the Middle East all the way into the land of Israel. And when he came to power, shortly after he comes into Israel, and this is a very dangerous individual, he's causing a lot of problem, a lot of trouble. And actually, Amos predicts that Assyria and also Babylon, which was in existence at the time but not in power, both of them were going to overthrow Israel and Judah because of all the rebellion and all their sinfulness. And so it kind of ties the whole package together. So what's he doing? What is Amos' role here? He's a prophet primarily of judgment. There's a little bit of hope here in the book, not a whole lot. Uh, not a whole lot of hope. Uh, Israel has long since disobeyed God. The immorality, the sexual immorality, was rampant in Israel at the time. It's well documented throughout the scriptures. Idolatry was everywhere, along with, and they just went along with all the cultures that they ran into. Oh, they worship this, let's worship that God too. They didn't care. Basically, you could say the world was their hero. They looked at the world and the people of the world, and that's what they worshiped. They didn't worship God. God held second place. And they wanted it all. So they had no kind of discernment as to different people worshiping different things. They didn't care. Sound familiar? Kind of like today. It's kind of like our culture today. You know, if you stand up and you say, oh, oh, no, there's not many ways to heaven. There's only one way to heaven. That's through Jesus Christ. What happens? People lose their minds. You can't say that. Well, I didn't say it. The Bible says it. Well, that's not right. I would never serve a God like my God is a loving God. And they go into, yeah, well, that's the God you created in your little pea brain. That's not the God of the Bible. So you're in a, you're in a big world of hurt there. But as I began to look at this, these are just some simple facts. There's a lot more of history connected to this, but we're not going to get into it because sometimes history is hard to listen to, but it helps you connect the dots, hopefully. Just say this, that Assyria was a danger. And what you're going to see happening throughout the prophecy of Amos is that Israel keeps making deals. They keep making deals to keep Assyria at bay. They want to avoid the inevitable fact that Assyria is going to wipe them out. So they keep on compromising, keep on giving away land, keep on doing all this. And guess what? Eventually, Assyria did. In fact, in about 23 years later, they took not only Samaria, the capital, and they destroyed it, but they also took Israel captive to Babylon, which was under their control. Babylon, Babylonia hasn't come into power yet. And that's when they went through another Assyrian king. And what did they do? They intermarried with these Jewish people, which they were forbidden to do. They intermarried with them, and they put them back in, into the land. And guess who that is? The result of that intermarriage is what we know today as the people who were the Samaritans. Remember in the New Testament, the Samaritans? They were kind of half-breeds. They were half-Jewish, half-Gentile. And they treated them like half-breeds. They were not respectable people. Remember the time of Jesus when he had that statement that the Jews had no dealings with what? The Samaritans. We don't deal with those people. You know what? There's still a Samaritan culture even today, which is pretty amazing. If you look it up, there's a little over 800 of them left. That's all. And it's over there between uh, Kiryat Luza and Mount Gerizim. And they have a Samaritan compound in Holon. And the problem with these people is they believed that you had to marry your blood relative. <laughs> a 
Okay, so there's a lot of incest going on. As a result of the incest, there's a lot of insanity, mental illness, um, deformity. Okay, very sad. Remember what Jesus said in John 4.20. We're going to be looking at this in the coming months in John. He said this to the Samaritan. He had this conversation in John 4.20 with a Samaritan woman. And she said, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. This is the lady responding to Jesus. And Jesus says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. In other words, you're not going to have to be at a certain place. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. Boy, what a, what a statement that is. I wonder how many so-called, air quotes, Christians today worship a God they do not know. They do not know. We worship what we know for salvation, what's he say, is from the Jews. But verse 23, but the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And the woman said this to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. So she had some religious background. And she says, when he comes, he will tell us all these things. He's kind of blowing Jesus off, really. Well, I'll hear that from the Messiah when he gets here. In verse 26, Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. <laughs> Stopped her dead in her tracks. You're, you're talking to him. You're waiting for the Messiah. I'm here. I'm talking to you right now. But these Samaritans were the result of what we're reading about that was going on in the culture and in the time of Amos. And it wasn't a pretty picture. The Assyrians are going to destroy the northern power of Israel. It's going to take a while for them to get down south, but Judah was following the same course. They were going down the same path. And according to the Bible, in 612 B.C., Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, fell to Babylon, and Babylon came to power. And as you know, not only did they execute the judgment that Amos predicted, Amos is saying, hey, it's coming, it's coming. Nobody listened to him. But they also destroyed Jerusalem. They burned it with fire. They destroyed the Temple of Solomon in 586 B.C. See, one of the things that's interesting when you study history and you look at all this stuff and how it all plays together, and I know it's a lot of information, and Thank goodness there's not going to be a test, right? <laughs> no test, but it's just information. But the one thing you see with history is when you, you talk about history from a secular standpoint, you begin to look at it and you're saying, wait a minute, that's exactly what the Bible says was going to happen. Okay? It, the Bible always, 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 always confirms historical evidence. The Bible really is one of the most accurate historical accounts of the ancient world. And we know that to be true because it's God's word. It has to be accurate. It has to be accurate. I mean, even the historians of the ancient times, when they would record history, what would they do? They would record it in such a way that would favor the king because their head would be on a platter if they didn't. And so even when you read secular history, Herodotus or any of those guys, they're, they're, they're tilting the scale a little bit in favor of whoever's in power. Um, one of the great Syrian kings of the time was Sargon II, his name was. And it's interesting because in the Oriental Museum at the University of Chicago, there's this giant obelisk, a giant stone, and on it, is a list of all the Assyrian kings. And a lot of Bible students find this interesting because all the Assyrian kings are named in Scripture, including some of the rare ones. Well, there's just one problem here. Sargon, the second's name, was not on the list. 
on this obelisk. And so the people looked at this statue and they said, oh, Sargon's not on there, but the Bible says that he existed, so the Bible must be wrong. Isn't it funny how whenever there, you look at secular history and something doesn't line up with the Bible, it's never secular history that's wrong. It's always God's word that's wrong. It's always God's word that's called into question. Even Bible-believing Christians, well, you know, it has most of the stuff right. I've heard people say that. Either this is the word of God and it's completely 100% truthful or toss it in the trash. Because if I can't rely on the historical accounts of the Bible, why can I rely on the words of life and how to get to heaven from Christ? Uh, there's some well-known Christians who've had a standing order. I don't know how much money it is, but they've given anybody. If you can find a legitimate contradiction even within the scriptures themselves that can't be obviously explained by some language or something like that, there are apparent contradictions that never end up to be true contradictions. And nobody's ever taken them up because you can't do it. It's God's word. And so... The, it's interesting, when this guy was left off the list, they say, oh, well, you know, you can't really trust what the Bible says, but you can trust in the moral teachings of the Bible. That's really what it is. But you can't really trust the factual information of the Bible. And what's interesting is, as the historians start to excavate and, and in ancient Assyrian uh, excavations, which is now Iraq today, guess what they found? They found King Sargon's, the second's name, um, engraved in every brick of the temple. So it supports what the scripture says. And they found that as these names were listed, it was found exactly in the same order that the Bible had it in. So we don't know why this statue was wrong, but it was wrong. <laughs> and so... It's interesting when the facts of history catch up with the accuracy of the scriptures. I always like that because the Bible, again, is the most accurate account of ancient history known to man. And it's phenomenal because the people that call it into questions, a lot of times they're not studying the Bible. They don't know the Bible. That's why it's important for us to have times like this where we're studying the word of God. You know, we should love to read the Bible. Start reading through the book of Amos. It's only nine chapters. You could read it pretty, pretty simply. And you're not going to understand everything. But you know what? I don't understand any, everything either. So that's why I study every week and try to figure it out. But it is the word of God. And we're going to see that these nations that surround Israel are very important. And as we begin to look at the, the book of, of Amos, we're going we're gonna to find... Uh, really what's what's going on here. And it, it, it may even seem almost shocking, kind of stunning, that it's so parallel to what's going on in our own culture today. It's very similar. Uh, well, let's look, first of all, here. We just got about 10 minutes left. So look at the details of his message. The details of his message. Okay, we looked at the description of the prophet. We looked at the date of the prophecy. Look at the details of his message, and we're not going to get through these. We'll just hit one or two of them here. First of all, it was a revelation of coming judgment. This says this in, over in, in Amos chapter 3, verse 1 to 2. Amos chapter 3, verse 1 to 2. I'm going to give you five things here about this, this prophecy of Amos. The first thing we learn is that this prophecy of Amos is that it's a revelation of coming judgment. It's a revelation of coming judgment. We don't like to hear that. People don't like to hear that. We don't want to hear the world is going to be judged. We don't want to hear that, you know, Israel is going to be judged. But it was a revelation of coming judgment of God. And this is what it says over in chapter 3, verse 1 to 2. Amos says this. This is just one example. It's everywhere. But look at this one example in 3, verse 1. Here the word of the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. And then he says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. He's, he's telling them, who do you think you are that you can escape the judgment of God? You're the people of God. You don't get to act however you want. 
And yet I hear Christians all the time, well, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I, you know, I don't have to do everything the Bible tells me to do. I can do my own thing. I mean, he's my savior. He's not my Lord. I don't need him in control of everything. Wrong answer. When we turn our backs on God and we sin against God greatly, who are we to think that God is just going to wink and say, yeah, you're covered by my grace. I'll just sweep it under the rug over here in the corner and we won't tell anybody. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. And we learn that in Amos that God is a holy God, first and foremost. He's a holy God. And he's also a God of justice. That's why I kind of put that clip art there, the roar of justice, because that's really what the book of Amos speaks about. You know, you can't just go on your merry little way down the path as a, as a nation or as a people and sin against God continually over and over again and not think that God isn't going to hold you accountable. You will face judgment. That's the first thing in Amos. It was a revelation of the coming judgment of God. Number two, it was a reference to Israel, primarily the northern kingdom. The second thing is it's a reference to Israel. He had a few words to say about Judah, but not too much. So it was, it was mostly about Israel, the northern kingdom. It would be many, many years before Judah would be judged after the judgment fell on Israel. But the judgment upon Israel was imminent. It was at the door. And over in Amos chapter 9, verse 7, he, he points this out. Verse 7, he says, Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring you up from the land of Israel, from the land of Egypt, and the Philistines from Kaphtor, and the Syrians from Kerr? It was primarily to Israel that he brought this message. That's what he's, he's doing here. Amos was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel, a contemporary of Hosea. Now, the third thing here we're going to get into next week because there's basically, um, it, it, it contains, the book of Amos contains the reasons why God is judging, why God's judgment is coming. It actually tells us why. God doesn't just judge us for no reason. God is just not up in heaven playing games you know, he, he's a loving God. He's provided a way of salvation for us. He doesn't want us to, to, you know, spurn that offer. He doesn't want us to turn our backs on that offer. He wants us to come to Christ. He wants us to put our faith and trust in his son because he knows if we do that, our sins will be forgiven and we will be reconciled to our God and our creator. But if, if that doesn't take place, there's judgment waiting. And he gives several reasons here. Six reasons, actually, why the judgment of God is coming. And you say, well, what are those six reasons? Well, there's written out, they're written out there, but we'll get into that next week. And uh, I pray that as we continue in our study of Amos, that you will, even this week, go home and read the book, read it from, you know, the, first, the, 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 nine, the nine chapters, like I said, it's not that difficult. And be patient and ask the Lord to give you wisdom as you research it and study it. And then when we come back next week, we're going to find out what exactly uh, are these reasons for his judgment. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that we would, as we endeavor to go through it uh, systematically and study this book, of the prophet Amos, Lord. I pray that you would make this living word real to us, that we would be blessed in our reading of it and our studying of it, that you would uh, apply it to our own lives, that you would make it practical to us, even though it was written a long time ago to a different people. But Father, it, it has many applications to us. And so Lord, I just pray tonight as we just set the scene a little bit about Amos and about the culture Lord, that we'll look forward to getting into to more depth next week and even in the coming uh, weeks and months. Lord, we thank you. And, and Lord, we pray for each one that's come out tonight. 
And Lord, we thank you for their faithfulness to take time out of their busy schedules each week to come together as the body of Christ and to worship and, and to study. And, and Lord, I know that many people here tonight have had a long day, a long week even. But Father, we know that you're a God who sustains us. And Lord, when we're obedient to you and we gather as the body of Christ, you will bless us not only as individuals, but even as a church. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be able to do all that you have for us the rest of the week. We pray for uh, whatever goes on the rest of the week. We think of the men's study on Thursday night. We pray you bless that. And even the men's prayer tomorrow morning, the women's prayer. Father, we, we look forward to how you're going to use us this week for your glory. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.